Welcome to the Future Sense podcast with Steve McDonald and Nick Jeans, broadcast weekly from our Future Sense pod in the northern rivers of New South Wales, Australia, and available on your favourite podcast platforms or directly through rd.org slash futuresense. That's double A-D-double-I.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at Future Sense Show or on our Facebook page. Thanks for joining us today. And hello and welcome to this week's edition of Future Sense, our podcast that is broadcast uh, throughout the world. And thanks for listening wherever you may be listening at at whatever time you may be listening. And hello to my co-host, Steve McDonald here. Good morning, Steve. How are you doing? Good morning, Nick. Great to be here again. Great pleasure to uh, to be with you. And uh, we, we've got a, a kind of special show today because we have a very special guest uh, interviewing with respect to some of the issues that are worldwide at the moment in terms of uh, the the revolution you could say that is occurring on the planet in various ways and the the efforts of uh, the powers that be to uh, manage those uh, forces that are erupting around the world and particularly some of those issues here in Australia but not just and with regard particularly to policing and the future of policing in this country and beyond and with us this morning we have uh, Mick Palmer Michael John Palmer AO APM he is a barrister as well as 33 year uh, in uh, a career as a police officer with extensive experience in police leadership and corporate governance, reform in community, national and international policing and security, and with an active interest in human rights and illicit drug reform. He joined the Northern Territory Police Force in 1963, and he was appointed Commissioner of the Northern Territory Police Fire and Emergency Services in 1988, and in 1994 appointed Commissioner of the Australian Federal Police, the AFP, a position he held for seven years until his retirement in March of 2001. Uh, I won't give the whole uh, amazing uh, resume that you've had, Mick, but some of the other features here which are relevant to today. You also, between 1997 and 2000, you were a member of the Executive Committee of Interpol, having become the first Australian elected to that position. Uh, You were also the inaugural Deputy Chair of the National Council Against Drugs, a position he occupied until his retirement from policing in 2001. And since uh, you're retiring from policing at that time, you have conducted a range of inquiries and reviews for the, uh, the Australian federal and state governments, both within Australia and overseas. A couple of other points here. Between 2004 and 2012, you were the federal government's inspector of transport security, a position created after 9-11 and the Bali bombing terrorist incidents to review ASC and land transport and more. You're a recipient of the Australian Police Medal and in 1998 admitted to the Order of Australia AO for your work in advancing the professionalisation of policing through the introduction of far-reaching anti-corruption processes and management practice reform. You're also finally a current member of the Board of Australia 21, and we'll probably talk a little bit about that today, and a member of the Foundation Board of the Queensland Mind and Neuroscience Institute the University of the Sunshine Coast. So welcome to our podcast, Future Sense, Mick Palmer. Thanks for joining us here and taking some time out. Um, nice to be with you, Nick. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Thanks, Mick. Uh, just to give you a bit of background, as we, uh, we per the information we sent to you, here on Future Sense, we're looking at um, often large-scale issues that apply to a shift in human consciousness on a, on a global level. And we're using a research-based understanding of of how humans are changing, which is based around the work of Dr. Claire W. Graves, which was done last century and uh, not published until almost the turn of the century. 
and his theory quite accurately predicted a revolution similar to the revolution that took place between the agricultural era and the scientific and industrial eras or era. Uh, and he didn't give the timing of that or, or any great detail, but he certainly described the themes and the mechanisms that would drive that particular shift uh, in humanity. And we, I, I've been studying his work since 2003, and what I'm seeing happening in the world now is exactly what his work predicted in terms of a rising wave of new values that's calling for uh, changes to you know the structure of government, changes to the way that we live, changes to human rights and all those sorts of things. And back in the 1960s, we saw an earlier wave of this same shift and, and many people are calling this time now the new 60s because of the similarity there. Uh, and I'm sure you've noticed that yourself, uh, you know, having lived through that time, uh, the, the protests that are happening around human rights, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter, those sorts of things call for uh, an end to warfare and tyranny, uh, a return to a more communal way of living, those sorts of things are very, very similar to what you must have seen uh, in the 1960s. Um, and I, I think the, the only significant difference is that there is a, a larger percentage of the general population now which is calling for that change. Um, does that scenario uh, sit well with you? Is that the sort of thing that, that you've been pondering yourself? A, a little, I have to say. Yeah, I hadn't uh, stopped to think about it in, in, in those deeper terms, I guess. But, you know, the the analogy is quite accurate, really, that there is, uh, as you say, a sign of a repetition of things that occurred in 1960 on a much larger scale and with much, I guess, I guess deeper feelings. Uh, and uh, on the back of, I think, social media and, and the nature of media now, giving people more access to uh, the reality of what's occurring or, or exposure, at least, to uh, what is being broadcast as having occurred. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, uh, it, it's not inconsistent with what I, what I believe. Um, that's great to hear. And um, I, I agree 100% with what you said about social media. In fact, if we look back through history, as our communications technology has got faster and faster, the pace of change has also got faster because, after all, change is, is really just a matter of spreading new ideas and influence. Uh, so that's obviously playing a really big role. Um, I'm, I'm interested to know whether uh, your work on, particularly on the Think Tank Australia 21, you know, is there any awareness of that this, these changes that we're seeing going on at the moment could be as big as this, you know, something that equates to, the, to that time when the agricultural era came to a, a rather bloody end, I must say, uh, and, uh, and the industri scientific industrial started to roll out? Well, I can't talk for Australia 21 specifically. Now, I'm now a director emeritus of, uh, emeritus director of Australia 21, so I'm not actively involved uh, currently right. with them, but I, I know categorically that uh, uh, what you say is quite accurate. They, they have some very serious concerns about uh, the nature of the way the world is, if you like, continuing to evolve and develop, uh, in particular in regard to uh, you know the way we safeguard the planet, the way that we get smarter in the use of agriculture in terms of... Uh, not destroying it in terms of uh, while we are at the same time supplying food and provenance for uh, for our population and so on. That, there's a lot of concern within Australia 21 uh, board ranks. I know about those the bigger issues that you talk about, and they are constantly uh, looking for financial support, if you like, to conduct in-depth reviews and assessments and to write reports on those sorts of issues. 
Just uh, quickly, Mick, could you just give a, a brief uh, uh, summary of what Australia 21 actually is? The website is australia21.org.au for those who wish to, to check it out. But could you just give us a bit of a, 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 some parameters about the mission of Australia 21? It's essentially a think tank organisation. Uh, it's based on a Canadian organisation of, of a different name, the name of which escapes me, that was created uh, back in the 1990s uh, and is the, uh, the brainchild... Uh, really, of Paul Barrett uh, and Bob Douglas, Professor Bob Douglas, uh, who created it uh, back in the very early 2000s. Uh, the whole idea is really to uh, it's a not-for-profit organisation to generate discussion on uh, what you know what are frequently termed wicked problems uh, impacting on Australia uh, and Australia's future, uh, for which there doesn't appear to be either too much motion in terms of improving the status quo or sufficient debate. So it's about creating opportunities and means of debate on issues of which are seen by at least by the board of Australia 21 as issues of crucial importance to Australia's future uh, and the process they use in achieving in, in dealing with that is generally uh, to uh, conduct a roundtable conference involving participants from the broadest range of, of areas in regard to that subject they can get in other words representing all sides of the argument uh, having a full day's uh, brainstorm uh, discussion uh, in under Chatham House rule uh, on the subject uh, and then uh, taping and recording all aspects of that conversation. Uh, then Australia 21 writing, re writing a report that reflects the reality of that discussion, not what Australia 21 thinks should be the outcomes or what they think ought to be done, but rather what the group of people around the table thought were the issues and thought should be done. Uh, that report then goes back in draft form to the participants and if and when they sign off on it, it is then published in that form. So it's a report that's intended to reflect the views of, you know, informed and learned people, experienced people uh, on the subject, uh, to accurately reflect all aspects uh, that were brought to the table in regard to that discussion, uh, and to hopefully, obviously, to offer some pathways forwards in terms of what could be done but is not now being done that might improve the situation. Mm. Just for our listeners, the, the, you mentioned the term wicked problems, which is a great term. We're familiar with this term. It's a term coined by design theorist and Professor Horst Rittel. And it is basically wicked problems refer to chronic ongoing issues that are both unsolvable and unavoidable. And where you apply customary problem solving, you actually only make them worse. So you need a kind of a different kind of thinking to, uh, to deal with these kind of complex problems that are emerging on the planet now. Thanks, Nick. Um, and that different kind of thinking feeds back into uh, the research of Dr. Graves, which we're using as a compass essentially in this uh, very interesting process that's unfolding globally. And uh, what Graves' work does is it looks at the human values that are motivating the behaviours that we're seeing uh, in uh, polarised groups. And so um, what essentially Graves' work says at the moment is we're seeing the end of the scientific industrial era, which he uh, identified as a layer of human consciousness, uh, and, and it's, uh, we call it layer five and the emergence of layer six, which is essentially a, a postmodern set of values uh, that is very humanistic and it, it uh, judges and rates things on the basis of human experience. 
and it's also very network centric. So it's a communally oriented value set, whereas the uh, scientific industrial era layer five was an individually oriented value set. And these value sets swing between an individual and a communal orientation. So the agricultural era was communal, scientific industrial uh, individual, and now the um, layer six postmodern or relativistic as Graves called it is uh, communally oriented. Uh, and um, the, I guess there's an inevitability in this trajectory, this momentum that's carrying us through these eras. And so uh, the, the sort of sticky issue is, okay, how do we gracefully transition from one era to the next with, without having the kinds of uh, civil wars and things that have gone on during previous uh, transitions? And I, and I guess, Mick, we're really interested to talk to you about the police angle on that and the, the law enforcement angle. Uh, and uh, police the police interface with government as well because um, where we're you know we're, we're in a, an era where all of our structures our government policies and processes have been designed according to scientific industrial thinking which is individualistic and quite hierarchical and the change that's being demanded by the, the new values is a collapsing of those hierarchies a decentralization of power and a return to human experience as the the key uh, driver human connection uh, to be more accurate uh, whereas success and profit making was a key driver in the previous uh, system um, so I guess you know the, the the really really big question that we're probably not going to answer today but but that over sort of over uh, sits or over uh, looks our, our discussion here is, you know, how the hell do we navigate that as best we can? And, and with the benefit of people like yourself who have a deep knowledge of how, you know, the established systems work and also are very, very clearly seeing that there's a change in place and things need to change. And, and you know, I'm, I'm very grateful to, to have you here uh, because there aren't many people around like you, to be quite honest. <laughs> Um, so, you know, from a police point of view, I mean, obviously the police often find themselves at the front line of, of this uh, tension, uh, you know, trying to enforce the, the old paradigm uh, and tied to the old uh, laws and processes and those sorts of things and um, trying to deal with a completely different mindset, you know, that, that's opposing the new system. Um, you know, what I just... Uh, I'd be interested to, to hear your perspective on how this has sort of unfolded since about the 80s because I was, as you probably saw in my bio, I spent 15 years in the Australian Army as an officer and uh, I saw in the late 1980s a reorientation of our strategic outlook from we, what essentially was, you know, the same as the Vietnam War. So we were continuing to train for the Vietnam War, you know, well into the 80s. And then all of a sudden we switched to what they called low-level operations, which really was about the, the threat of domestic terrorism, domestic insurgency and civil unrest. Uh, and so we, we went from uh, sort of calling in artillery fire to uh, putting on shields and, and masks and dealing with uh, make-believe protesters and those sorts of things. And, and I'm sure that you would have seen that, uh, you know, wherever you were at that time in terms of the, the massive increase in counter-terrorist funding, uh, you know, and, and the shift of outlook there. What did that look like from, from your perspective at that time? Well, it was sort of change in policing, I have to say, uh, from from about the 80s. You're quite right, probably a bit a bit earlier. But uh, I remember well in when John Avery was New South Wales Police Commissioner, uh, he wrote a book which became quite a celebrated book on policing uh, called, I think the title was From Force to Service. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, 
the focus even back then amongst policing was we need to change the way in which we we are structured and the way in which we get our people to think about the business they do it is easier to have a police force again to pick up your army analogy you know a structured organization where people are told what to do and get on and do it uh, but in the world in which we're now finding ourselves living uh, we have to have a much more flexible approach both to the way that we uh, allow people to exercise power the way in which we function as an organization uh, so it must, must be it must become and has to become if you like much more decentralised, uh, much more authority given to police officers on the beat to make their own decisions, to back their own judgment, to exercise their own discretion. Uh, and uh, that part of that deal is to create an environment in which they see themselves as part of a service where their priority function, if you like, is to deliver a service to the community rather than a force that enforces the law. Mm. Uh, and I think some very significant... And I was personally quite involved in that process. I believe that was exactly the way we ought to go. Uh, I was with the Northern Territory when that sort of first started to really create momentum uh, and through what was then the Australian Institute of Police Management at Manly, uh, might have been the Australian Police Staff College in those days, it was a senior academic uh, educational facility for Australian police and uh, an international police in the South West Pacific uh, to, for, for them to attend. Uh, the whole focus of, of that training and development, if you like, but that development really uh, and learning experience changed to reflect this more service orientated approach to the business we do, impacted adversely, if you like, but not unexpectedly by 9-11 and then Bali 2002, which because of then, uh, you know, the creation of terrorism as a real threat uh, and the reality of what had occurred in those two events, uh, a move back towards a much more enforcement focused discipline mm -hmm. Uh, the AFP, for example, became much more a uniformed organisation. On the back of that, we were essentially a plain-clothed organisation until 2001. Uh, but shortly after that, because of the nature of the responsibilities placed upon the AFP by the federal government for reasons you could understand, including offshore policing and the need as part of that process to recruit police from police forces around the country to be part of the Australian Federal Police Force uh, terrorism component, if you like, an overseas deployment process... Uh, it became a much more uniformed organisation uh, and police force became re-emblazed, re if you like. Some background noise here, mate. Yeah, um, the, uh, uh, so, and I don't think we've recovered from that. Uh, I understand mm -hmm. why it occurred. Police, most organisations, I think, around the country now would refer to themselves as police forces, not police services. Uh, and there's, uh, you know, a much heavier uniform presence uh, and, and an old-fashioned, if you like, police patrol and enforcement focus in law enforcement than what was likely to have been the case in the 1990s, where we were really softening the way in which we did, did business, employing much more discretion and flexibility. Uh, and uh, uh, so we made some forward progress. Uh, the nature of events, the reality of events on the ground, yeah. uh, which was very severe, caused a rethink. You know, community expectations that really were then based about keeping us safe uh, and we created, a, in law enforcement terms, an environment not unlike COVID-19 where, you know, caution was optimal uh, and enforcement and the rigidity of uh, application of the law became more important than what it had been before that time. Mm. So I think we've gone through a couple of iterations. We're now back to being a bit more, and I think now it's becoming very counterproductive to what we really need to achieve, a much more traditional old-fashioned enforcement organisation or series of organisations than we really need to be or than we should be. 
It's very interesting, uh, the title of John Avery's book itself, From Force to Service, really says it all, uh, because that's a wonderful title that articulates the, the values shift that, uh, that we're talking about, and what you've articulated is a really good example of how those sort of uh, new values emerge into culture, and then often there's like two, two steps forward, one step back, or sometimes even two steps back occasionally, and that sort of regressive uh, search to go back to the way we the way we were, the way we controlled and, and uh, maintained things, uh, forced upon us by these events as you articulated. So rather interesting uh, example of exactly uh, what this show, in fact, is all about. Absolutely. And also the the change dynamic that uh, Dr. Graves described in, in his research, what, uh, it included uh, what we call a slingshot effect. And, and that term slingshot effect comes from stock market terminology where often the market will take a downturn just before a, a massive uh, increase in value. Uh, and vice versa, and and uh, in Graves's work, uh, what he described was that when a set of values which drives you know, our motivation and the way that we we live our lives, the way that we structure our governments, those sorts of things, when when those values no longer work so well, it thrusts us into a what he called a values regression, where we start to think about the old times, we think about when things used to be good. And we often go on a journey backwards through older value sets. So in this case, with this shift between the scientific industrial and the relativistic or postmodern, what that means is going back to essentially agricultural era values and and sometimes even uh, further back than that, which results in rigidity of thinking, uh, ethnocentric thinking, in other other words, racist uh, thinking, um, and uh, often the use of force to try and solve problems. And so um, these events that you've been describing represent exactly that, a regressive value search where people have resorted to violence and terrorism to try and get what they want because they felt that the, the social systems weren't allowing them to get what they want in a, in a peaceful way. And Graves's work pointed out that in terms of long, the long-term evolutionary progression, that actually speeds up the change because it's the tension on the rubber band of the slingshot which actually determines how fast and how far the projectile goes. So when you have an event like 9-11, it increases the evolutionary tension significantly and often, or usually after an event like that, there are great leaps forward made in terms of social change. And, and we're actually just seeing that right now with COVID-19 where we've gone backwards into individual isolation and we've come out of that wanting to join together in community much more than we did before. So it's actually accelerating the shift that's mm. underway, if that makes sense, Mick. Mm. Yeah, yeah, uh, well, I think that's right. I think it has. Yeah, and so the the trick is, unfortunately, most people don't have the, the benefit of, of this kind of understanding or the large-scale perspective to realise that, okay, this feels really bad in the moment, but it actually is going to speed things up, you know, in a good way. Uh, and I guess part of our work here on Future Sense is to try and point out these large-scale patterns and help people understand the, the dynamics that are driving social behaviour at the moment. Um, so, so getting back to the police perspective, um, it, assuming that uh, you know our, our scenario is correct, that we're witnessing the birth of a, a new set of values that's actually driving the emergence of a new era, which is going to bring changes to the way that we govern ourselves. You know, the, it's going to bring uh, decentralisation, a more humanistic approach, a more service-oriented approach, uh, as you were saying. Um, how, I guess, what are the 
what are the change-related risks and opportunities from a police perspective? I mean, given that police are often the interface between government and the community when things, you know, when tensions are high, uh, I, I guess the risks are obvious at the moment, and we're seeing that play out. Uh, unfortunately, in the United States. And maybe we'll just take a small detour and talk about that US uh, situation at the moment. Um, you know, what are some key problems emerging from a policing point of view that you're seeing in the media reports from the US? Well, in, in the nature of violence obviously worries people who are looking at the what, and I was going to get onto this in the broader sense, issue of policing but I'll talk about it now and we can talk about it a bit more later you know, policing is much better at dealing with the what than the why so whatever the behaviour is that is being conducted uh, for which people are responsible if it happens to be unlawful well police can respond to the unlawfulness of the behaviour uh, without having to spend too much time thinking about why it is they're doing what it is they're doing uh, and uh, that's the nature of policing we've always been much better at dealing with the what than the why I think the real challenge in the current environment is that we get much better we must get a much better understanding of the why why uh, what are the reasons why some of this behavior is occurring and what the hell do we do about those reasons in terms of minimizing the chances of the behavior continuing uh, i think that's classic in the united states sense there's police are in between a rock and a hard place actually I, and i'm not trying to be in, in any way an apologist for united states policing uh, there's lots of examples of bad policing but obviously as everywhere there are also lots of examples of good policing but they're now in a situation where the laws are pretty clear in terms of what's lawful and unlawful behavior so whatever their personal views are about the reasons why people are for example, looting shops or protesting and committing violence on the streets, they have to deal with the looting and the violence on the streets. Uh, and that, of course, immediately puts them in conflict with uh, their, uh, the broader citizenry, citizenry uh, broader community. And uh, so that's a huge problem for policing, as you know. Here, even with peaceful protests, most of which do end up at the end of the day having a bit of violence attached to them, at least small you know, segments of, the, of a protesting group will generally commit some sort of crime. Police have to respond to the crime, and next thing there's a, there's a brawl, and next thing the allegations are made against police for excessive power and so on. But the whole, the whole environment, which is one of conflict, is absolutely negative to policing. Uh, some of the challenges in my view are, and certainly the, it's very difficult to deal with these things on the run while the violence continues as it was recently until very recently in the United States and probably still is. Uh, but until we stop, uh, and, until we take time to think more carefully about what the laws are and what the punishments ought to be for different breaches of law uh, uh, and deal with that in a, in a proactive way, in a more constructive way, we're always going to be putting police between a rock and a hard place. I mean, the worst case scenario for a police force, and this is the case in Australia, is for young, I mean, police, most of the hard work of policing in the street, street face work, street uh, work of policing, on street work of policing, is committed by, uh, by the youngest officers. Mm. So they're the people with the obligation of performing uh, police, police duties, street, street duties for policing. Uh, and they are generally of the same age, male and female as the young people who are committing most of the, the pro, being involved in most of the protest or committing most of the offences under the current law. So the law and the nature of conduct at the moment is clashing to the extent where police spend their life in conflict with the very people from whom they need most support and with whom they should be developing the best possible relationships. That's a real dilemma for policing uh, and one which doesn't serve anybody well and makes life almost impossible for a young police officer and sometimes very violent for them too, in fairness to them. Mm. Yes, yeah, very good point. Wonderful. Um, 
a lot of what we're talking about here, therefore, is the the, the way that training actually occurs for police uh, coming into the force and the, the psychological nature of those officers. And I have a I have a fairly recent document from December 2019. It's an American document from the National Center for Biotechnology Information, the National Library of Medicine, and the National Institute of Health. I'll just quote one of those things here, talking about because you alluded to earlier in the when we uh, when we began this this morning about social media, about the media itself, and about uh, cyber um, issues. So this little quote here, just to to, to pull that into into line here. Today's police officers carry more tools on their equipment belts, for example, tasers, and on their bodies, for example, body worn cameras. They utilize more equipment in their patrol cars, for example, computers, and face more public scrutiny of their actions due to smartphones and social media than officers from prior generations. It can be argued that the job has never been more demanding or, for that matter, more stressful. In the least, there is little dispute that contemporary policing is extremely complex and challenging. For this reason, law enforcement agencies are obligated to hire, train and retain a cadre of the most psychologically fit police officers. Um, and I guess it's hard to disagree with, but how would you see that? Do you agree with that, essentially? And how would you see that? Um, is that coming into um, police training in this country and other countries, for, for example, that you're aware of? Yes, I'd largely agree with that. And I, and I think that has really been in force uh, for quite some time in Australia. I mean, not always achieving the ends we might have set for ourselves, but uh, the quality, the nature and quality of uh, police recruitment, even in my time before, you know, leading up to 2001, had changed quite remarkably. And the, the quality of young men and women who were applying for policing, even in those days, was very high mm. in terms of uh, academic qualification, nature of the characters and so on. The, the nature and extent of the recruitment process was far more sophisticated and far more in-depth than what it had been in my younger day. Uh, and a lot of it was psychological profiling. Uh, it's never going to be a perfect beast, obviously. I mean, people, among other things, do learn how to play the game, obviously, uh, and it won't always pick up all of the, uh, the character flaws that may, may apply to a particular individual. But the, the nature and quality of the recruitment process in modern policing, in Australia particularly, where the forces are all large, uh, you know, like the United States, in a sense, suffers from, in one sense, suffers from having some 25,000 police forces, some of whom, many of which are very small. They're quite quite Uh, privatised in some cases too, aren't they? They are indeed, and the level of training, of course, is sometimes very rudimentary, and and the quality of recruitment is nothing like it would likely be in Australia. Bigger forces are quite different over there, but so you've got, you know, it's a much more complicated environment in the United States. Here, we've only got eight police forces, essentially, eight police services. Uh, You have a much higher level of... uh, uh, scientific, if you like, or and sophisticated recruitment, a much more careful assessment process. The numbers applying far outweigh the numbers that are being taken. So in almost all the cases, as, uh, on my last look at that, uh, so we're not short of recruits. We're not having difficulty in getting people to show an interest in joining police, uh, policing. So they can be careful. Uh, and the in-service over the nature of in-service recruit training, first of all, is much more in-depth and scientific than it used to be and gets better all the time. And in service training, it's much more, much more likely to be focused on some of those uh, psychological uh, mm. sort of aspects of the skills you need to possess as a, an operational police officer than what used to be the case. In my day, almost all the training was based on the tactical needs, the, you know, the, uh, the what needs of the job. You know, what are the laws? What are the points of mm. proof you need to prove to prove an offence? Uh, you know, what's a lawful arrest? How do you go about it? And so it was all on the mechanics, if you like, of policing, not much on the engineering. Now there is mm. much more focus on the engineering. 
Uh, so the quality of police officers, I think, these days is probably as good, if not better, than ever. Uh, but you're right, the, the commentary was right in saying it is a very complicated environment now. Uh, they're, uh, you know, constantly because of social media and, and, cam, uh, and mobile phone cameras and the like uh, on constant uh, public view, uh, as well as their own body cams and so on. So huge accountability placed on young police officers in very difficult circumstance. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's some of those situations where you only have uh, a second or two to make a decision as to what's the appropriate reaction to a problem uh, are not always going to be dealt with as well as you would if you had more time to think about it. Mm. Uh, but it's likely then to be dissect, dissected by the medium, by, by observers over hours, uh, and criticisms made. So I think it, is important, it really is an important aspect of the problem to, to, for people to realise the environment in which police are called upon to make action these days, uh, and uh, the, you know the enormous weight, if you like, that is placed on the youngest officers. The hardest job is given to our least experienced people. That's the reality, really. Yeah. Uh, from the same article, which is entitled New Directions in Police Academy Training, a call to action from December last year, as I said, I'm interested in your comment on some of their, their, uh, their talk about emotional skills, which you're sort of alluding to there. And just your comment on this little uh, quote here, the emotional exhaustion officers experience from constantly showing the public emotions other than what they are actually feeling. Uh, for example, remaining calmly stoic when disgusted or smiling when actually angry. I think this is very interesting, and uh, probably at this time, as you're saying, with the with the uh, policing, perhaps the same cohort in some of the pro protests that are occurring around the planet, really bring this up that they're actually having to deny the feelings that they're feeling. Can you uh, make a comment on that, please? Yeah, I think it's exactly on the money. And the other one I'd add to that is uh, to appear courageous when you're feeling fearful. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a, right. it's quite right to say that, mm -hmm. you know, first responders, police and other first responders run towards danger while the rest of us are running away. Yeah. And we've seen a lot of examples of that in the last yeah. few years, yeah. uh, including on the London Bridge. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of people, uh, I remember reading the figures, uh, one of my recent reviews, one of the views in the early 2000s after 9-11, uh, of the number of firefighters uh, with one part of the fire service a New York Fire Brigade losing almost all of its people, running into it, running from a place of safety into the towers to attempt to save people and most of them perishing on about the 30th floor, having continued to climb to help people while mm. the fires raged and the building collapsed. I mean, there's a huge cost we're expecting of young operational first responder people. Uh, and I don't think we understand that well enough. I'm quite deeply involved, actually, in uh, in some work on post-traumatic stress, uh, which is becoming uh, a really serious problem in policing. Uh, we've had uh, too many suicides in policing, generally with by service revolver, uh, in the last couple of years across Australia. Uh, and uh, not all of it is solely related to work-related pressures, but in almost every case there's a, there's a connection, including there might be some also domestic situation problems, but they're, they're clearly interrelated. The nature of the work, just, you know, in many ways defines the nature of, the, of your domestic relationship. Uh, so there's a huge pressure on young policemen and women. Uh, I think uh, the comment you, you, you mentioned a little while ago about uh, the importance of the obligation on policing to not only train but retain mm. uh, is something I think every police commissioner in the country would love to do. Uh, but the length of time that members are spending in policing these days, I think probably all around Australia, but I know in many cases uh, is getting less. Uh, you know, the you used to be able to expect eight and ten, eight to ten years of service from most members. I think it's down now around the five or six. Uh, 
uh, in many cases. So people aren't staying in the job as long as they used to be in many cases. Uh, a lot of that is caused, uh, a lot of the reasons for that are the pressure that people find themselves under, uh, the unpopularity that can come and the public exposure that can come from the job that you're expected to do. Mm. And uh, when young men and women uh, decide to, to marry and uh, or form partnerships and, and have children, they find this is uh, too, hot a, too hot a fire to stay part of. And so they step away from uh, step away from the work, which at a time and generally, as it is when they uh, suffer post traumatic stress, it generally happens to people, if you like, at the almost at the apex of their career, when they are clearly uh, very good at what they do, but they've gone to one too many fatalities, they've gone to one too many homicides, they've seen one too many child uh, child death, etc., and all of a sudden, what became a work challenge in terms of that false face that you talk about, being courageous and when you feel fearful or being calm when you feel anxious, uh, becomes too much. And uh, as a result of that, of course, they uh, they find they can no longer continue. Uh, we are losing in policing, I think it's fair to say, far too many people to uh, to that sort of, uh, to a, a mental, uh, to a medical pension environment uh, who are pensioned out, superannuated out because of uh, their considered medical unfitness to continue. We're not anywhere near as good as we should be at uh, preventing uh, identifying the early warning signs of uh, uh, stress-related uh, trauma uh, and dealing with it so that we can manage it early, prevent it getting worse and have people recover and come back to full, full work. So we're losing people at the, at the prime of their capacity uh, through the stress that the work itself puts upon them. Mick, uh, you may have seen in my bio, I'm a, a war veteran and I've been through my own battle with PTSD and uh, I'm also a founder of Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine, which is Australia's non-profit research organisation. We'd love to talk to you about this in depth in another episode uh, on another day if we could. That would be amazing. And uh, I've got some good news on that front in that we at PRISM have just got ethics approval to go ahead with a small MDMA-assisted psychotherapy clinical trial in Perth to treat uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, and we hope oh, to be fantastic. starting that within about yep. um, within about 12 months or so. Um, but, uh, yeah, if you're up for yep. it, we'd love to talk to you another day and just focus on perhaps uh, that, that issue yeah, happy, together with drug war reform yeah. and, and psychedelic research. That would be great. Yep. We are going to split this interview into two parts, and so we'll uh, we'll wrap up part one here, and uh, and then we'll come back for part two. And uh, I'll talk to you during the break about uh, about that. But I'm what I mentioned right. in covering in part two, uh, if you have time, is just looking at what might be possible in terms, you know, how to how what can change, what can we change, and how do we change it in order to make space for a revolution to happen, a revolution of human values and a change in society, uh, while also, you know, maintaining the role of police, you know, in, in what they do within society, you know, and, ma and make that a healthy uh, exercise. So uh, we'll take a breakdown. We'll, we'll come back uh, with part two. Th thanks so much for being with us, Mick. You've been listening to the Future Sense podcast with Nick Jeans and futurist Steve McDonald, broadcast weekly. We're also happy to be liked or loved on the platform that you're listening to right now, and we welcome feedback, comments, and input. Thanks for joining us. And remember that the future is here now. It's just not evenly distributed.